I invite you to pray with me. Holy Father, thank you that we can gather around your word. This is a thing that the church has been doing for generation after generation, century after century, millennia now after millennia, that your people have been gathering around your word. We believe that the Bible is your holy scripture. We believe that it's breathed out by you and that it's true and useful for teaching and correcting and rebuking and guiding and encouraging. And so I pray now that you would speak to us through your word. I pray now that we would be formed, shaped through the truth of your scripture. I, I invite you now, Lord, you are the potter and we are the clay. And so put your fingerprints on us. Shape us and guide us and form us into the vessels, the useful vessels that you desire us to be. Equip us to be your people, your church, proclaiming your kingdom to the world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning is an introductory sermon to a brand new series in the book of First Thessalonians. I always get excited whenever I start a new book of the Bible, whether that's in my personal devotions, just starting to read a new book of the Bible, or whether that's preaching a new series, which we're starting today. The reason I get excited about that is because uh, I am excited to see God in new ways, right? I, I've read the whole Bible, I'm sure you've read the whole Bible, and yet when we read and reread and, and dwell on it and meditate on it, we see new things, we behold new things in God's Word. We never come to the bottom of it, we never come to the end of it. And so I'm eager to see God in new ways, I'm eager to deepen my knowledge of who God is, and eager to grow in my love for God, and I believe all of those things will happen during this series. Thanks, buddy. Uh, not because I'm a great preacher, I don't think that, but because our God is a great God and because he is pleased to bless the preaching of his word to shape his people and that is what I am counting on, God to show up, God to do his work through the preaching of his word. So the first do, thing that I do whenever I start a new book of the Bible is I kind of just take a minute to look around and get oriented, right? We're starting out on a new journey, so it's good to get oriented at the start of the journey. It's sort of like, I don't know if you've been to Disneyland or Disney World, but what you, if you watch people walk through the gates of Disneyland, the first thing that the people always do whenever they walk through the gate is, is they pull out their map, right? And they look at their map to see. They've just walked in through the gate, and now they've got this whole big park open to them, but it's big, and it's intimidating, and there's so much to do and so much to see. Most people don't just wing it. Most people come up with a plan, and the way they come up with their plan is by consulting their map. They want to know where they are, and they want to know where they can go and what they can do. And so this morning, what we're doing is walking through the gates of First Thessalonians, right? We're just entering into the world of First Thessalonians. What we want to do first is look at the map, get oriented, think a little bit about the context of this book, and then just do a little brief flyover and think about the content of this book uh, as, as, as a way of introduction to this series. So the first thing that I always ask a book of the Bible, whenever I start reading it, I always ask, what do we have here? What are we reading? What are we looking at? What type of literature is this? 
right? Is it a historical narrative giving us true historical facts about things that happened in the past? Or is it a parable, right? Not, not a literally true story, but a story that's telling us something that is true through a parable. Or is it a poem? Is this a poem, either from the Psalms or from some other part of Scripture, where God is, 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 is a poet? Or is it a prophecy? Or is it an epistle? Are we holding a letter? Or is it something else? So we want to know what type of literature we're reading. And the reason that we want to know that is because that will impact the way that we interpret the text. Right? You interpret different kinds of literature differently. It's all God's Word, and it's all true, but you interpret it differently depending on what type of literature it is. For example, if you're reading the newspaper, and if you read in the newspaper a headline that says, last night the pirates slaughtered the twins, right? you might be inclined to think that well, there was some sort of tragedy on the high seas. What, the pirates are slaughtering twins? But if you look closer, you see that you're reading the sports page. And if you're reading the sports page, you will interpret those words differently than if you read them on the front page. And the reason is because of genre. You read articles about sports differently than you read articles about other things. Poems can convey deep and profound truths, but they do so in a way that's different from how a historical book would convey the truth. That impacts the way we interpret them. So in this case, we're in 1 Thessalonians. In this case, what we have here, what we're looking at, the genre, is a letter. We're reading someone else's mail, except not really, because this is for us too. So we're reading a letter. 1 Thessalonians is one of Paul's very first letters that he wrote, that at least that we have. It was written around the year 50. 50. Which means that it was written a little less than two decades after the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. A little less than two decades. So if you, just as a side note, if you have bought the lie that there is this massive gap between the life and death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and the writing of the New Testament, uh, you have been misled. That is not the case. The books of the New Testament were written within a generation of the earthly ministry of Jesus. And 1 Thessalonians was one of the first ones to be written. Okay? It's a letter. When we have a letter, we have half of a conversation. Right? That's what you get in a letter, is one half of a conversation. And so the more context that we can get regarding the circumstances of the letter, the better. Right? Maybe, maybe you've had this experience where you're engaged in a long and deep conversation about an important topic that matters to you and matters to the person you're talking to, and then a third person walks up and joins in, like maybe an hour into the conversation. That person doesn't know what's been said already, and so that person raises questions that you've already addressed and moved on from, and now you need to go back and bring that new person up to speed so that they can participate in the conversation in a meaningful and relevant way. That's us in this conversation, right? Paul is having a conversation with the church at Thessalonica, and now we're, basically 2,000 years later, just joining in. So we need to take a little time and get brought up to speed. And thankfully, the Bible provides us with some of the background information about this conversation. We find this background information in the book of Acts. So we're going to look there 
as well as we'll look at the actual letter of 1 Thessalonians a little bit, but mostly this morning we're looking at Acts so we can get context for this letter. So I'm going to look at the first four words of, uh, of 1 Thessalonians, and then we're going to look in Acts to see what we can find out about it. The first four words of 1 Thessalonians say this, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. That's how it opens. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Three names, four words. So it's a letter written by Paul, but it's actually written from three men. So we need to ask ourselves, who are these guys? Who are Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy? And Acts is the book of the Bible that can help answer that question. So let's go there. If you either pull a pew Bible out of the out of the seat in front of you, or if, even better, if you brought your Bible from home. If you're in a pew Bible, then we're in Acts 15, Acts 15, which is page 897, 897. And I'm, I'm going to start in, in verse 36, Acts 15, starting in verse 36. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, commanded by the believers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So Paul and Barnabas used to be a team, but they have a disagreement, a sharp, that's, the, that's what the Bible says, they have a sharp disagreement. And as such, the, the disagreement was over who should join them and whether or not this guy John called Mark should join them. And the, the disagreement about that was so sharp that they decided they needed to part ways. They're not going to be able to, to reach a compromise. And so they're going to have to go their separate ways. Barnabas goes with John called Mark. And Paul goes with Silas, whose formal name is Silvanus. That's the Silvanus. Silvanus from 1 Thessalonians. Now it's easy to gloss over that and move on. But there, think about this. There's got to be an awful lot of pain, an awful lot of prayer, probably some sleepless nights over this dispute. Right? Paul and Barnabas were tight. They were like brothers. They had experienced the joys and the trials of ministry together, life together, pursuing the Lord together. And to part ways then over a disagreement about John Mark, that must have been excruciatingly painful. And in a weird way, I find it encouraging that this very human dispute is recorded in Scripture. It is a reminder that the relationships within the church can be sometimes hard. One of the reasons that's so is because these are the things, these are the truths 
right? These are the truths that we care most about, that we're basing our entire life on. These things matter to us. If it didn't matter, we wouldn't care, right? If we didn't really care about the Bible, we'd have no problem getting along, right? But it's the fact that we, this book matters so much to us, that this is the most important thing to us in the world, these truths, that it makes it very, very difficult when we have disagreements, when we don't see it the same way. It's painful. And, 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 and also because the church is full of some of the people that we love the most and care the most about, right? If we didn't care about the people in the church, we wouldn't care if there was conflict or disagreement. But we do care, and so it's painful. When we disagree within the church, it can feel really personal and painful, as it did for Paul and Barnabas. I also, I find it encouraging to know that they struggled. They were human beings, and they struggled like we do. I also find it very encouraging to know that Paul and John Mark reconciled and restored their relationship by the time they came to their end of the, the end of their lives. How do we know that? Well... At the end of Paul's very last letter, 2 Timothy, he may have written more letters, but that's the last one that we have. 2 Timothy, he's at the end of his life, right? He's wrapping things up. His own metaphor is that at this point in his life, he's folding up the tent, rolling it up, packing it up, and ready to go home. You know that feeling? We just did that. We were in radium camping. I know what that feels like, right? The end of a long trip, it's been good, and you're thankful, and you're tired, right? And you, you pull down the poles and you fold up the tent and you wrap it up and you pack it up and you're going home. That's the metaphor Paul uses for his whole life in 2 Timothy. The time for my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, right? I have finished the course. I have kept the faith and the time for my departure is here. That's what he says at the end of 2 Timothy. He's rolling up the tent. He's packing up. It's been a good trip and he's going home. And do you know what he says at the end of all that? At the end of 2 Timothy, he says, these are instructions to Timothy. He says, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Get Mark. I need him. I'm at the end of my life, and I need Mark. Bring him here. Now, most commentators identify that Mark as the John called Mark from Acts, the one that Paul didn't want to travel with. The one that Paul left Barnabas over because he so emphatically did not want to travel with John called Mark. Now he's saying, hey, bring him here. He's, I need him. I need him here now. He's very useful to me in ministry. And I believe that's an indicator that they reconciled and that they restored their relationship. And I believe that's a beautiful thing. So let's see that incident in the early church as an example and as an opportunity, an opportunity to make sure that the relationships here at Ebenezer are healthy and are reconciled. And let me say this as plainly as I can. If there's someone in this church with whom you are not relationally reconciled, you need to take steps to make that right. Don't believe the lie that time heals everything. Time doesn't heal everything. A broken relationship is like a broken bone, right? It will heal over time, but it'll heal crooked. It'll heal crooked unless you put it straight and set it in its proper place, which can sometimes be painful, but it's the only way that leads to healthy healing. The Bible could not possibly be more clear on this. If you're in a relationship that's been broken, 
you need to take steps to make it right. And to refuse to do so is rebellion against God. Even the Apostle Paul had to do that in his own ministry. So swallow your pride and take that step if you need to take it. Listen, our church will never be healthy if there are hidden, unaddressed, broken relationships in our midst. It just won't. And so I'm going to do something weird and unusual right now. I'm mid-sermon, and I'm going to pause right now, and I'm going to pray. Let's pray together. Dear God, thank you for this church. Thank you for all of the years and decades of ministry that have gone on here. Thank you for all the lives that have been blessed by the ministry of the gospel that has taken place here over the years. We pray your protection upon this church, and we pray for the relationships within this church. And I pray that you would not allow any broken relationships to be little gateways whereby the evil one can enter into our midst and stir up strife and dissension. Protect us from that. Keep our relationships pure and healthy. And if there's any broken relationships in the church, if anyone is feeling uh, convicted right now, then please give us the strength and the courage to step forward in faith and to make things right. I pray this, believing that you are present with us and at work amongst us. Your will be done. Amen. All right, well, that's why Silas, or Silvanus, is traveling with Paul and is part of the author team writing to the Thessalonians. But who's Timothy? Who's Timothy? Well, if you keep reading... Acts in chapter 16, read it with me. Acts 16, I'll read the first three verses. Paul came to Derbe and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of Timothy. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. I'll stop there. That's our introduction to Timothy. Timothy's a godly young man who's the son of a pious Jewish mother and a pagan father. Now, what brings this threesome, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, what brings them to Thessalonica? Well, if we keep reading, we find out. Verse 6 of, of chapter 16. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. And so they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. And after Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So this is Paul's, we're, we're, we're stepping into the story during Paul's second missionary journey. He's at a bit of a geographical fork in the road, at this point, and he's not sure which way to go. He's kind of on the fault line, if you can picture it geographically, between Asia and Europe. And he's thinking, at this point, he's thinking, okay, he'll take the gospel to Asia. 
And yet God in his sovereignty has other plans for the building of his kingdom on earth and for the spreading of the message of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so God sends a vision to redirect Paul in his path, to change his plans. A Macedonian man appears in this vision and begs Paul to come and help them in Macedonia. And in obedience to this vision, in obedience to this redirecting of the Lord, The, 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 geographically, the area of Europe and really basically the history of the whole world is altered according to God's sovereign will, right? The history would be very different if Paul had proceeded on to Asia, but he didn't. He got redirected and he went to Macedonia according to God's will. Now, now, now where and what is Macedonia? Well, Macedonia is not a city. It's not a country. It's a whole region within Greece which in Paul's day, the, the region of Macedonia was under the Roman Empire, under Roman control. And within Macedonia, there were several important cities. Paul would have traveled along those cities following a popular trade route called the Via Ignatia uh, in order to visit these cities. And Luke, who wrote Acts, recounts what happens in these cities. So first, Paul ends up in Philippi. Luke describes that in Acts 16. We don't have time to linger there now, but he describes Philippi as a leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. Paul runs into opposition to Philippi. He ends up in prison, in a Philippian prison. God miraculously delivers him by sending an earthquake, and then the magistrates kick Paul and his companions out of that city, and so they have to move on from Philippi, and their next stop on this journey as they follow this Ignatian way is Thessalonica. So let's read what happens here. We're in Acts in chapter 17 now. Acts 17. And I'll start in verse 1. It says, When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and, Ap and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. And as was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days... He reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. And they rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil, then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. So Paul arrives in Thessalonica. What sort of city is this? What should we be picturing? When you hear that sentence, Paul arrives in Thessalonica, what are you picturing? In terms of size, it was a city of about 100,000 people. That sounds to us, to our modern ears, that sounds like kind of a mid-sized city. 
but it was actually in those days one of the largest cities in all of the first century Roman Empire. It was a big city, 100,000 people. And not only did lots of people live there, but it was a center for trade. It was a trading city, and so they had lots of uh, foreigners moving through the city every single day. It was, a, it was a big, busy, crowded city. I've already mentioned Thessalonica was right on the Via Ignatia, which was the, the, uh, uh, the most important trade route in the whole empire over land. You could take that road from there all the way to Rome if you followed it. And so lots of foreign traders passed through the town. And also Thessalonica was sited right, uh, situated right on a beautiful harbor. So it was a regular stop for traders both by sea and by land. In terms of the economy, not only did the city bring in vast sums of money through its trade, but it was surrounded by very fertile and good farmland. It had a thriving mining operation, and it had a booming fishing industry. This was a wealthy city. If you're picturing Thessalonica, picture a busy, wealthy, crowded city. Politically, Thessalonica was the exception in the Roman Empire because it was a free city. Okay? Most cities in the Roman Empire were occupied by the Roman military. They were ruled over by the Roman government, but not Thessalonica. They controlled their own political affairs, even though they were part of the Roman Empire. They were given autonomy. They even minted their own coins. They had their own economy. Now this dynamic is important to our story because you can imagine most cities and places within the Roman uh, Empire were ruled over by the Roman government. This place was not. They had their own autonomy. They didn't want to lose it. They didn't want to do anything that might upset the Roman government and cause them to send soldiers in and take over. right? So they had their freedom, but they were very concerned about keeping their freedom and not having any political turmoil or any riots or anything like that that would wreck their freedom. That's important as part of the backstory. Because the city was so cosmopolitan with so many people from so many different ethnicities coming and going, there were lots of different temples and places of worship within the city. Lots of religions were practiced within the city. Thessalonica was only 50 miles from Mount Olympus. Mount Olympus was where Zeus was worshipped. So lots of people who were making their pilgrimage to Mount Olympus to worship Zeus stopped by in Thessalonica. The most important religious rite that was practiced there, practiced by everyone, or supposed to be practiced by everyone there, was the worship of the Roman emperor. Everyone was free to practice whatever religion they wanted as long as they also, in addition to that, worshipped the emperor. Okay? Do, believe whatever you want to believe, worship however you want to worship, but just add to that worship of the emperor and you're good. And that is, of course, the one thing that Jews and Christians could not do. They couldn't worship the emperor and also worship the one true God. You can't do both. And so I hope now a concrete picture of Thessalonica is starting to emerge for us. It's a large, ethnically diverse city with a thriving economy, with political autonomy and spiritual plurality. Diversity was encouraged. The big thing that could get you into trouble was if you started to talk about exclusivity. If you dared to suggest that you cannot worship every god at the same time, 
That saying yes to the one true God means saying no to all the false gods. People didn't like that kind of talk. And when I think about those characteristics of Thessalonica in the first century, I'm struck by how similar to our own situation it is. Economically prosperous, politically stable, spiritually schizophrenic. Willing to believe every, anything or everything as long as it's not exclusive, right? Everyone can believe what they want to believe just so long as you don't say that there's something as exclusive, objective truth. Now, when Paul arrived into this city, he headed right for the synagogue, which is what he always did. Why is there a synagogue in Thessalonica? Well, it's because of the, this is a big fancy word, it's because of the diaspora. The diaspora what that is, is that Jewish people used to live in the promised land, but as you know, there were times throughout their history when they were attacked and defeated and kicked out of the promised land and taken captive to foreign places. And some of them stayed there even after others returned back to the promised land. And as a result, there were Jewish people spread throughout the Roman Empire, all throughout. And those pockets of Jewish people established synagogues where they could come on the Sabbath and study the Scriptures and worship God, and pray together, and experience fellowship. So think about that. God in His sovereignty established these little outposts throughout the Roman Empire where the Old Testament Scriptures are being studied and believed. Scriptures in which the coming Messiah is prophesied and anticipated. And so when Paul would arrive into a town, any town in the Roman Empire, any good-sized town, he... he, he had a built-in audience ready to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? He was a Jewish teacher, a Jewish rabbi, so he could go to the synagogue, he could preach and teach, he could explain that Jesus Christ is the fulfill- fulfillment of God's Old Testament promises. And inevitably, when he would come to the synagogue and preach that message, some believed that message, and some rejected it, some rejoiced, and some got angry. And that's exactly what we read in verses 4 and 5. It says, Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar, and they attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Now remember what we said about Thessalonica being a rare, politically independent city within the Roman Empire. The last thing they want is, 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 is some kind of religious uprising or political rebellion. That, that would be just begging for the Roman government to step in and take over. And so these angry Jewish people who don't like Paul's message drag these early Christians in Thessalonica before the city authorities and they make a political accusation, not a religious one, a political accusation. Right? They say these... These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar. They're acting against the decrees of Caesar. And they're saying that there's another king, Jesus. And as a result, Paul and his companions have to flee Thessalonica in the middle of the night. They go to Berea. Guess where they go? They go immediately to the synagogue in Berea. And they begin all over again, proclaiming the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and planting a church. By this time, 
Jews from Thessalonica have followed them, and they're once again stirring up a crowd in Berea against them. So Paul has to flee once again, but he leaves Timothy and Silas in Berea. Paul goes to Athens. Paul preaches the gospel in Athens. But Timothy gets sent back to Thessalonica in order to encourage and instruct the brand new church there and also to give them presumably an update on Paul's status since they would have been wondering what happened to Paul since he was driven out of town. Eventually, Paul goes from Athens to Corinth. He plants a church in Corinth. He spends 18 months in Corinth. And while he's there in Corinth... Timothy joins him. Timothy comes and brings the verbal report from Thessalonica to Paul in Corinth. That report from Timothy contains good news of the faith and love and steadfastness of the church at Thessalonica, despite all the hardships that they're facing. And upon hearing that report, Paul writes the letter of 1 Thessalonians, which we are now holding in our hands the letter that Paul wrote to the believers at Thessalonica. It's a letter of thanksgiving. It's a letter of encouragement for this church in the midst of all their hardships. Now remember, Paul has been, he's been persecuted there. He's been threatened. He's been run out of town for preaching Christ, for planting a church in Thessalonica. Those believers are still there in that context. They're living it out day in day out in that environment that is so hostile to the exclusive message of Jesus Christ. And so you can imagine what a comfort it is to have this letter, a letter of encouragement and instruction from the man who, not that long ago, had been physically right there with them in their midst and had planted the church. These are people that would have been able to listen to this letter and hear it in Paul's actual voice, right? They could have remembered what Paul actually sounded like when he preached to them. They could have called to mind, these people, what Paul, what Paul sounded like when he laughed, right? They, 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 would have, they would have known how he walked. They would have known what his, what his rough leather worker's hands looked like. They would have thought with affection about his visit and the way that it had blessed them and the way that his message of Jesus had, had revolutionized their lives, right? Their lives had been turned upside down and they had been so blessed by the message that Paul had come and now they have a letter from him. And so the letter arrives. No doubt word went out to all the members of the church that there's going to be a special meeting because they have a letter from Paul and they want to gather together and listen to it. And so when evening comes, I imagine everybody kind of making their way to one of the houses of one of the members of the church. They don't have their own church building. They just meet in a house. It's not a large group of people. It's certainly not a group of people this size. Nowhere even close. It's a small gathering of people. They're all able to fit within the living room of, of, of one of the members of the church. If you, if, you, if you want to picture the size of a room, don't picture this. Maybe picture our library and everybody packing into that. And then it's dark. Oil lamps are lit inside. Quiet greetings are exchanged. Remember, this is a church that's still being persecuted. Prayers are prayed. Songs are quietly sung. It's good to be together, and the people feel that. And then a parchment is pulled out, 
and it's unrolled. It's a letter from Paul. And one of the voices reads out these words. Everybody's just there ready to listen. What's he going to say to us? And it starts, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And you hear those words and your heart just sings. It's like Paul's right back in the room with you again, speaking directly to you, giving comfort, giving hope, giving strength, giving joy. You have this feeling that everything's going to be okay now. You can relax. You can lay down in the back of the station wagon and rest because God's driving. And it's going to be okay. I got this letter from Paul. A letter of encouragement and comfort. As I've said, 1 Thessalonians is part of a conversation between Paul and the first century church at Thessalonica. But we are also part of this conversation. Because this letter was written to the church, to the church. And we're part of the church. And God has a message for us here as well. And over the next weeks, we're going to look at that message and we're going to see what God has to say to us here, now, today, in our context. If I could summarize the message of 1 Thessalonians in just one run-on sentence, I would say it like this. Here's the message of 1 Thessalonians. In this life, suffering is inevitable, but our ultimate future is secure, and therefore we should live lives of faithful obedience today. As far as I can tell, reading the letter over and over again this week, that's what I get. That's my summary. In this life, suffering is inevitable. Make no mistake. Don't be confused by that. Don't be thrown by that. Don't be shocked by that. In this life, suffering is going to happen. But... Our future is secure. God has it all worked out and it ends well. Our future is secure. And therefore, despite the suffering that happens, we should live lives of faithful obedience today. I believe that's the message of 1 Thessalonians. That's at least my summary. I am convinced that this letter is just as relevant and powerful to us today in our context as it was to the church Thessalonica in the first century. I believe that this letter has lessons to teach us today in our context about how we should conduct ourselves during our journey to heaven to remind us what it means to count the cost, to pick up our crosses, to deny ourselves, and to follow Jesus. To show us that it is in fact possible to be engaged with our culture and yet stand out from our culture, both. We must engage, engage our culture, and yet we must not blend in and be just like our culture, but to stand out from our culture. I think First Thessalonians is going to help us see how to do that. And it's going to show us what it means exactly to be watching and waiting and anticipating the return of the Lord Jesus Christ while we live lives of simple and faithful obedience today. 
I cannot wait to see what the Lord will teach us through this letter in the weeks to come. I trust, I believe, that by the end of it, by God's grace, we will be an even more Christ-centered, Christ-exalting church than we already are. That's my prayer. I invite you to pray it along with me. Lord God, thank you for this particular letter. We're thankful for all the scriptures. But this morning, we're thankful for this particular letter of 1 Thessalonians that you, by your Holy Spirit, inspired Paul to write with Timothy and Silvanus, that you sent to encourage and instruct the first century church of Thessalonica so long ago, and that you have preserved and sent now to us. And even though we don't get to hear it in Paul's voice, because we don't know what Paul sounded like, we do get to hear it in your voice. Because it's your Holy Spirit who speaks to us when we read the Bible by faith. And so I just pray, Lord, as we start this journey, as we walk through these gates, as we begin to look around and think about what all's here, as we get oriented, Lord, I pray that you would use this letter in our life as a church to continue to shape and form us, to make us a Christ-centered church, to make us a Christ-exalting church, to empower us to live lives of simple, faithful obedience today while we watch and wait and anticipate the sure and certain return of your Son and our Savior Jesus. Amen.